0: You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. We want to invite you to return to Isaiah. We're going to begin in chapter 8. I think what I'll do is... um, I'm going to read chapter nine, verses one through seven, and we'll handle chapter eight as we go through because I want to look at the larger context of this well-known passage. So let's let's go to Isaiah nine. I'm going to read Isaiah nine, verses one through seven, but our uh, our sermon's going to begin with chapter eight, verse one. If that makes any sense. If it don't, it'll make sense in a moment. So chapter nine, verse one. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this let us pray heavenly father we so thank you lord for this text and it's a pretty well-known text and father what is lesser known is the context and, Father, we pray that, Lord, you'll help us put our thinking caps on this morning and work through the context, O oh Father. For, Lord, we know that as we come to see your word as you have given it to us, Lord, we will see marvelous things in it. And, Father, we pray that you would show us wondrous things from your law this morning, Lord. We pray, O oh Father, that you would open up our minds to your truth and that we would receive this, for we will see in our context that how we receive you really has a big bearing on our relationship with you. Father, we pray, O Lord, that you would strengthen us, especially in these anxious times, especially as we think about this world and we think about our children and the upcoming generations, Lord. There are many children here this morning and many children represented by this ministry. Father, we lift them before you. Instruct us, O Father, we pray from your word. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if we look back to chapter eight and verse one, notice the word "then." Uh, What we have here is Isaiah now speaking Uh, again. He is, you know, uh, last week we saw uh, Isaiah comes to Ahaz, King Ahaz, if you will, who's a wicked king, um, and he comes and. has a message to bring to Ahaz, when we come to chapter 8, we see now that Isaiah is coming to the people of Judah. And notice what he does. Uh, in, verse, in chapter 8, verse 1, the Lord said to me, that is Isaiah, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Mehershalah Ashbaaz. Now, this large tablet, you know, in this day, it wasn't like he could go down to Staples and get one of those, you know, one of those big tablets, you know, uh, that uh, a, a lot of kids like to play with. I know um, uh, Kylie really likes those things, you know. Um, they couldn't quite go down there, so this is this tablet is probably a piece of polished metal, or it's perhaps a, a polished stone. But to put it in the contemporary terms, what Isaiah is making is a billboard. You know, if we can imagine this as a billboard. And what's he putting on the billboard? Belonging to Meher Hashbaz. Now, (laughs) that's a mouthful we can barely pronounce. What in the world is the significance of that? Or what does that mean? Now, if you have an ESV open, and I would suspect that a lot of our translations would have a footnote right after Hashbaz. I think the NIV does. Uh, And if you go down into the margin, it'll say that Meher Hashbaz means "the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. Now, some might be scratching their head equally. Well, I was supposed to make this clear, right? <laughs> nice and clear. Um, one of the problems is we're removed by uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years from this. And, you know, there is a, a cultural barrier. There's a time barrier. There's a, a language barrier. There's a number of things that we have to uh, get across. But I think a couple of things here will make this a little bit easier. If you look in the margin and you see the spoil speeds, comma the prey hastens. Okay, what does that mean? Well, let's let's start with what's easy. Speed hasten. Pretty easy words, right? That means it's going to happen. Whatever's going to happen, it's going to happen fast, right? Spoil prey. What is what is spoil? Spoil is like when an army goes and conquers a a, a nation. You know, in ancient times, what did they do? Well, they went through all the goodies and they carried the goodies away. Well, the goodies was the spoil. So, okay, what do we have here? We have with the word speed and the word hasten, okay, something's about to happen real fast. What? Spoil and pray. Okay, this becomes clearer. Somebody's about to get plundered is the message of this. Someone is about to get plundered. Okay, who? Who? Well, look at verse 2, chapter 8, verse 2, Isaiah 8, verse 2. And I will get reliable witnesses. Okay, so he's making this billboard. He's putting this billboard up. He's writing, belonging to Meher Hashbaz." And verse 2, he's getting reliable witnesses. Uriah the priest, Zechariah the son of Jebeirakiah. Okay, who are these characters? We don't know a whole lot about them, but one thing I think we can say, with reasonable certainty, is they're not fans of Isaiah. Okay, what's the purpose in getting them? Well, that's going to become clear, I think, here in a moment. But these are people that um, would probably be quite loyal to Ahaz and to what Ahaz has done. Now, what is Ahaz doing? Ahaz has turned his back on the Lord. That's what we saw last week, isn't it? He's turned his back on the Lord. Instead of putting his faith and trust in the Lord, what is he doing? He's putting his faith and his trust in his political maneuvering with Assyria, right? That's what we saw last time. Uh, so, uh, Uriah and Zechariah are people that the population, the populace of Judah, would probably see as reliable. For right now, as we're coming through this, uh, this is for, for Isaiah's purposes, for the Lord's purposes, it's better that he gets Uriah and Zechariah to witness this and not Isaiah's buddies. That's going to become clear here, uh, in a moment. Now, okay, so. Isaiah builds this billboard, if you will. He puts belonging to Meher, Meher Shalahashbaz on it. He gets Uriah the priest and Zechariah to come and to attest for him. In other words, they're to witness what Isaiah has done. They're to be able to witness this, say, okay, this is when it happened. This is what happened. This is what took place. Okay, so they're, they're parties to this, if you will, that they've witnessed it. Now, in verse 3, Isaiah says, and I went to the prophetess. And she conceived and bore a son. Okay, prophetess. Who is the prophetess? It was Isaiah's wife. So Isaiah and his wife, they have a child. Um, And uh, we're told that then the Lord said to Isaiah, call this child's name Meharshah Ahashbaz. Now, here we have yet another child, don't we? We've had a couple of children whose names we've seen have been significant. You know, uh, Emmanuel is one. The virgin shall be with child and shall call his name Emmanuel. And what have we said? We've said that the significance lies in the name, doesn't it? What does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. And then we had Sheer Jeshub, right? We had Isaiah's son Sheer Okay, we've seen that come up. Now here we have Meher Shalhashbaz. Okay, what's Meher Shalhashbaz all about? Okay, someone's about to get plundered. Okay, so the billboard goes up. Isaiah has witnesses that the billboard went up. Isaiah and his wife have a child. The child's name is Meher Shalahashbaz. Now in verse 4, we get a time frame. For before the boy, that is Meher Shalahashbaz, before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. What's significant about that is, well, now we know who's getting plundered. Who's getting plundered? The king of Israel and the king of Syria. Well, this is going to be good news for Judah, isn't it? Because currently the king of Assyria and the king of Judah have gone gathered together, and they've been attacking Judah, right? We saw that last time. Now, what's this all about? Well, I know it's confusing because you have Syria and you have Assyria. It can be confusing. Assyria, A, beginning with an A, is risen to a superpower. And they're very ambitious. And what are they doing? They're, they're expanding their kingdom. They're going into neighboring nations. They're conquering them. And they're ruthless and they're vicious. You know, both the history books and even uh, things that have been uncovered by uh, archaeologists, the, the Assyria's own documentation showed how ruthless and how really vicious they were uh, in terms of their exploits. So this has created a lot of fear among the smaller nations that are around them. And what is what has happened is Israel and Syria have gotten together and they've said, listen, if we, if we get together, we're going to be stronger. We can put up a bigger fight against Assyria. So let's get together. Okay, sounds like a great idea. And then somebody finally says, hey, let's get Judah to join us. We'll be even stronger yet. So they try to get Judah to join in, but Judah refuses. And when Judah continues to refuse, they finally get mad and they attack Judah. And that's what's going on right now. They've come in and uh, 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 Israel and Syria have come in and they've attacked Judah and they're clear down to Jerusalem. Uh, they've, They've sustained a lot of loss. Now, what's Ahaz doing? Ahaz's way of worming out of this is going to Assyria and making a deal with Assyria. And that proves to be disastrous. Uh, Ahaz refuses to trust in the Lord. He's trusting in his own devices. He's trusting in his own uh, acumen. He's trusting in his own political maneuvering, which is, he makes a hack job of it, doesn't he? A complete hack job. And what do we have going on now? Well, now we have a word from the Lord that... Damascus and Samaria, that is Syria and Israel, are going to get plundered by Assyria. Now, what do you suppose Judah's reaction to this word is going to be? It's going to be one of joy, isn't it? This is exactly what they wanted. This is why they made a deal with Assyria. They made a deal with Assyria so Assyria would come in and sack them and get them off their backs. And here they're getting a word from the Lord that this is exactly what's going to happen. So undoubtedly, they're rejoicing so far with this word. Well, this sounds great. And they might even conclude, and I think they probably would conclude, that they must be doing the Lord's will here. This must be the Lord's will. You know, look, because it works. Let's stop right there before we go any further, because we live in a day where that same logic prevails. In other words, if something works, then it must be right. Just because it works doesn't mean it's right. Look at the rest of the text. Look at verse 5. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people have refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently. What's that all about? Again, it's poetry. Who, is the, who or what are the rivers of, uh, or the streams, rather, if you will, the waters of Shiloh that flow gently. This is a metaphor for God. It's a reference to the Kihan springs, if you will. And it's a reference to those those gently flowing streams of water that come into uh into the land, if you will. Um and of course water is needed for life. Water is needed to sustain life. And the idea is here are these waters. They're not they're not threatening. They're life-giving, they're life-sustaining, and it becomes a metaphor for the Lord himself. And what is being said here is because they have refused the Lord, and notice the second part, and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah." Now, who are these characters? These are those kings. The king of Israel and the king of Syria. Now, this can be a little confusing if the whole thing isn't confusing. Someone say, well, The whole thing is confusing. If you're getting this for the first time, I know it's a lot. Um, it's it's a lot. Um, but wh- one thing that as as we think this through, and we ask ourselves, okay, who is this people? Who exactly is this people? In verse six, because this people have refused the waters of Shiloh. Okay, we'd probably be thinking of Judah. Because Ahaz and Judah, what have they done? They've refused to put their trust in the Lord, haven't they? But then when we get to this rejoicing over Rezin and the son of Ramaliah, that kind of sounds like Israel. Because it's Israel and Syria that are in cahoots together. Um, and that's how some people interpret this passage. I think, a better, I think a better interpretation of this passage is, remember, how would Judah have responded to the initial prophecy that Isaiah is giving? What is Isaiah saying? He's saying in a very short period of time, someone's getting plundered. Okay, ooh, Assyria and Israel, those two that are attacking you, they're going to get plundered. Who's going to do the plundering? Assyria. Oh, that's great. That's, that's, this is what we wanted to have. This is why we've went and made the deal with Assyria. Well, this is great. Not so fast. Not so fast. Verse 5, because you have refused to put your trust in the Lord... And you've refused to trust in him. And because you're rejoicing. I think the rejoicing that's going on is rejoicing because these kings are about to get destroyed. I think that's the rejoicing that's going on. And if that is the case, let's think this through for a moment. Judah's re- Judah is rejoicing because Israel is about to get destroyed. Now, I g- granted, they're at war right now, but they're kinsmen. You know, it would be like... Imagine being so estranged in your family that you're rejoicing because part of your family is about to get annihilated. That seems to be the case here. We think of how hard, how hardened everyone has become. That seems to be the case here. Notice verse 7. It starts with a therefore. Therefore. Okay, we have a because at the beginning of verse 6. We have a therefore at the beginning of verse 7. Okay, because you have refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rizin and the son of Remaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river. So two things are being contrasted. These gently flowing streams versus this river, and this river is said to be flooding. This river, it's the king of Assyria. And it's flooding. We're told it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. It'll sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread rings will fill the breadth of your land. What's this all about? There's no more, there's probably no more laughing going on right now. What is this all about? Those guys that you made a deal with up there, you know, Assyria, here's what they're gonna do. Yeah. You wanted them to get rid of the king of Assyria, or the king of Syria, rather, and you wanted them to get rid of the king of Israel? Oh, they're going to do that. But they're going to swarm clear down into Judah, and they're going to come down to where they're all the way up to your neck. Imagine being in a flood, and the waters come all the way up to your neck. You're not quite drowning yet, are you? But the waters are clear up under your chin. It's not a very comfortable spot, is it? And that's exactly what happens, actually. That's exactly what ends up happening. It's disastrous. Now, notice that at the very end of verse 8, we have these two words, O Emmanuel. And this is the, the cycle of the prophets, isn't it? You get this really, really bad news, and all at once you reach this oasis of hope. And here you have the words, O Emmanuel. What does that mean? O God with us. Oh, God with us. What a wonderful message that is. You know, if we stop right here and we think, we might not understand all these details. If you're getting this for the first time, you probably don't have all these details sorted out yet. You've got to go through it a number of times to do that. Uh, But here's something that I think we can understand. Regardless of how things look, oh, Emmanuel. You know, the people in this day didn't understand all of the things that were going on. We have the advantage of reading. I mean, in some ways, we have an advantage over them because we have the advantage of reading about backdoor deals between Ahaz and and Assyria, which they might not have known about, perhaps. We have the advantages of uh, of knowing this from the perspective of after it's already happened. Just like today, when we try to figure out what's going on in the world, what's going on in the Middle East, what's going on in Russia, what's going on in Ukraine, what's go- I don't think there's a person that has any idea what's going on over there. To be quite honest with you, how many different narratives have you heard about what's happening over there? And I don't think we know. But one thing we do know is the Lord knows what's going on. And I think what's comforting to us is this, Oh Emmanuel. Notice what's said in verses 9 to 10, because this takes us back to something we were looking at last week. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor. Notice the redundancy there. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. And then we have Emmanuel again. Only this time it's translated for us. For God is with us. In the original, we have Emmanuel at the beginning. We have Emmanuel at the end. We have God with us at the beginning. We have God with us at the end. Now, what's in between? What's in between is so really important. You remember last week when I said, okay, the king of Syria, the king of Israel are furious with Judah, And what have they said they're going to do? They said they're going to come into Judah, they're going to kill Ahaz, and they're going to set up their own king. And you remember last week, I said, listen, what they're really doing, whether they realize it or not, what they're really doing is they're thwarting the very plans of God. What this thing really is is an assault on what God is doing because God has placed his king on that throne. You follow me? Who is Ahaz? He's a wicked king. You know, we saw he, he's turned his back on the Lord. He's led the people in Baal worship. He's led the people in all kinds of false worship. He's led the people in all kinds of sin. He's not trusting in the Lord. He makes us deal with us. He's doing everything. In fact, he's running out of bad things to do very quickly. He's an awful king. But nevertheless, he's in the line of Judah, and he is the Lord's ordained king for that period of time. And it's the Lord who puts the king on that throne, not the king of Syria, not the king of Israel. So, what is it? It's almost as if it's a taunt here in verse 9. Be broken, you peoples, be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries, and all you foreigners. Listen, strap on your armor and be shattered. In other words, Assyria, go ahead, strap on your armor and be shattered. What does this mean? It means it's not going to stand. It doesn't mean there's not going to be a lot of, a lot of uh, bloodshed in the meantime. It doesn't mean there's not going to be a lot of suffering in the meantime. It doesn't mean that things are going to be easy in the meantime. But what it does mean is it's not going to work. Judah is going to be overrun, but only up to the neck, right? It's not going to work. Why? Because God is with us. Now look at verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people. Now that sounds familiar, doesn't it? If you go all the way back to chapter 2, which we were a couple of weeks ago, and you look at verse 5. And you remember I said, listen, this is, a, this is a pretty key verse here in understanding all of this. If you look at verse five, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in what? Anybody. Anybody. Let us walk in the light of the Lord, right? What do we have here in verse 11? The Lord, chapter 8, verse 11. The Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in what? The way of this people. It's the walk in the light of the Lord, not in the light of the world. Follow me? Verse 12, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. What is the conspiracy? You can almost giggle and laugh here. What do you mean what is the conspiracy? There's all kinds of conspiracies going on, isn't there? There's a conspiracy between, we got one between Israel and Syria, and they're attacking Judah right now. You've got one between Ahaz and and Assyria who are making this deal behind closed doors. In fact, it even could be said, some could call Isaiah. Isaiah. A conspiracy? Why? Because he's coming in and he's preaching judgment to his own countrymen. That's a lot. Of, a lot of times, that's that could get you charged with treason. Could it not? A lot of the prophets were charged with treason. Jeremiah, for example, is charged with treason uh, for doing just that. I, it's not specific, so I think we could say, probably safely say, it's all of it. Now, there's probably other things we're not even aware of. Do not call conspiracy all that these people calls conspiracy. Look at the second half of this. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But verse 13, the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. This takes us back to chapter 6, which we didn't study. But some of you are familiar with chapter 6. Now, that's where Isaiah sees the vision of uh, the New Testament tells us. It's a vision of Christ, isn't it? I saw the Lord seated upon his throne. And then you have those, those uh, mighty angels that are proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's taking us back to him. Who are we to fear? We're not to fear all these men. We're to fear the Lord. Verse 13, second half, let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Verse 14, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. What does all that mean? Some of you will recognize it because that language is brought into the New Testament and scattered into a couple of places, isn't it? Peter brings this language into his letters, if you will. What is this all about? Look at it again. Verse 14, he will become a sanctuary. What's a sanctuary? Well, what it's saying is, for those who receive Him, for those who receive Him in faith, He's going to be He's going to become a source of counsel and consolation. For those who receive Him, He's going to become a source of strength. For those who receive Him, He's going to He's going to become a source of comfort and et cetera, and et cetera. He's going to become a refuge for those who receive Him. God will be all these things to them, if you will. But what about those who reject Him? Uh, He'll become a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses. Verse 15, many shall stumble upon it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken away. We're going to see this come up a little bit more at the very end of this chapter, so let's save it for then. Look at verse 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. What does that mean? Well, it could be taken literally where Isaiah is writing this stuff on a scroll, and he's to roll a scroll up and put a seal on it so no one can tamper with it. But I, I, think, I think and it, that, that could be in view here. But I think what's more so in view here is Isaiah is to teach these things to his disciples. You know, why are we doing what we do right now? We're opening up the Bible. We're struggling to understand it. If this is your first time through this, you might be scratching your head a lot, but it has to be done. We're not going to get the comfort from it unless we do the work of trying to ascertain what it says and make an application of it, right? And when it's new, it's a struggle, isn't it? So binding up the testimony, seal the teaching, that's what we're doing right now. We're applying God's promises and God's truth to our hearts afresh. Why do we need to do that? Because it's rough out there, isn't it? And it's a long week between Sundays. And when we leave here, what are we going to be constantly bombarded with? A contrary message. We're, we're told not to listen to. We're to walk in the light of the Lord. But so much of the time, we're, we're just being assailed with the light of the world aren't we so bind up the testimony seal the teaching among my disciples verse 17 i will wait for the lord who is hiding his face from the house of jacob and i will hope in him behold i and the children whom the lord has given me who are signs you see his children are signs i think the way we're to understand that is the 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 message is in the meaning of their names that's what i said last week that's that's I think that's the point. Does does that make sense? The children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? What's that all about? Well, these are the fortune tellers and the psychics. You know, you would think if we stop right there and make an application, you would think in this scientific age that we're in right now, where science has pretty much replaced religion in many minds and science has become God of the land, you would think that the line to the, to the local psychic would would pretty much be done, wouldn't you? But yet when you look at the, the psychic, you see there's still a line trying to get into the fortune teller and the psychic. You know, I don't watch a whole lot of TV, but here's another observation if you're gonna watch a cops, and, if you're gonna watch TV, you're probably gonna watch a cops and robbers show, right? Because that's what it all is, isn't it? Pretty much, cops and robbers. Well, they make for interesting stories. You're not gonna watch a cops and robbers series for very long before there's gonna be a psychic brought in in one of the episodes. You ever notice that? I don't watch a lot of it, but um, you'd think there would be no place for a psychic at this point. Yet, there's still quite a line outside the door getting in to see the fortune teller. What are we being told here? Do not inquire of them. What is the logic? The logic is, shouldn't you inquire of God? I mean, you're going to have to put your faith in something. You want to put your faith in God, whose resume is perfect, or do you want to put your faith in someone you don't even really know? There's a sign on a telephone pole It says psychic readings or something. You're going to put your faith on, on that? Have you ever seen the signs on the telephone pole It says psychic little sign that someone printed off on their computer and stapled it to a telephone pole? Am I the only one that's seen those? You're going to put your faith and trust in that. To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn, no light. What a metaphor. No dawn. You know, this morning, I don't know, the time is the, it, it, you know, the days are so short right now. Um, I don't know what time we got up this morning and started. I don't know, it was pretty early, but, um, and at one point I looked out the window and I could just start to see just a little bit of light, you know, on the, just on the horizon, you know, and this idea of dawn, you know, is just, you know, with the dawn comes the light of a new day. You know what I mean? Um, if they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. Ahaz is a man who has no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry they will be enraged and will speak contentiously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. You know, we can stop right there and go back to what I promised there, you know, where Ahaz is concerned. You know, he's he's trying to steer his country, if you will. Instead of leading his country to trust in the Lord, what is he doing? He's trusting in Assyria. And then it looks like everything is going great. But how does it end? It ends disastrously. And how do you suppose Ahaz's approval rating is towards the end? Very, very low. That's always the case, isn't it? Very, very low. Look at, they're speaking contemptuously against their king and their God, and they're turning their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But notice verse 9. Again, here we come to this wonderful oasis, and we come to this passage that perhaps most of us are more familiar with in verse 9. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, what's that all about? If you look at a map of the Holy Land, especially in the back of some of your Bibles, there'll be a a map back there, and it will show the allocation of the tribes of Israel. And if you look, you'll see that that, uh, Naphtali and Zebulun are up in the northern area. And when Assyria attacks, how's Syria going to attack? They're going to come in and down from the north. So who's going to get the brunt of this? It's going to be Zebulun and Naphtali. They're going to get the brunt of this. In the former time, chapter 9, verse 1, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. What's that all about? You know, this chapter is so um, well-known because if you look at verse 6, you know, to us a child is born, and we know who that child is, don't we? It's Christ. Let's think about Christ's earthly ministry. As we think about his earthly ministry, one of the places where he spends a lot of time is in Galilee, isn't it? The way by the sea. In fact, how much of the time, I've pointed this out when we've been studying over the years, how much time has Jesus spent on a boat just crossing the sea? I really believe that a lot of times that's when he gets his break. It's like, get in the boat, let's cross the sea. Take your time getting to the other side, you know? I mean, I don't think he was like that, but I think we would be. We're the disciples. I think we'd go, let's row a little slower. (laughs) My point is, And you look at this text. In the former time, he had brought into contempt the land of Zebulun. Yeah, Assyria came in and sacked it. in fact, Israel is off the political map in 722 BC. They're completely destroyed, carried away by Assyria. But in the latter time, our God, O Emmanuel, does not abandon them. Jesus himself, who is what? None other than God in the flesh. He actually spends a lot of time in this area, doesn't he? Healing and performing miracles. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Who is that great light? It's none other than Christ, isn't it? Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. You have multiplied. Notice this is talking like it's already happened. It's called the prophetic perfect to where it's so certain it's going to be 700 years before this happens. And that's a lesson for us, isn't it? But it is so certain that Isaiah is speaking as if it has already happened, and guess what? Nearly two thousand years ago, it did happen, and that should comfort us as we as we look at the headline news today, should it not? Verse three: You have multiplied the nation; you have increased its joy. Think about how big the new Israel is in comparison to the old Israel. Who's the new Israel? The church. Think how much it's expanded. I mean, it's expanded all the way to, uh, I would say, sunny Chester, but it's not so sunny today, is it? But we're 6,000 miles away, 2,000 years later. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. Here's this, this idea of joy, if you will. Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. This is speaking of Gideon's, um, you know, his defeat of uh, Midian back in the book of Judges. But what verse 4 really about is is deliverance from oppression. And verse 5, what it's about is deliverance from war. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government, notice this, the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called. And we have these four titles. And I think we can flesh these four titles out a little bit as we move to chapter 11 next week. I mean, that's my intention is to go to chapter 11 next week. But here we have Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, this counselor, wonderful, the word wonderful there is, could be translated miraculous. Miraculous counselor. In other words, the counsel and the wisdom that will come from this child, the counsel and the wisdom will be none other than God's wisdom himself. Why? It's because it will be almighty God, God in the flesh. And, you know, once in a while, people will ask about this verse. Have you ever wondered about? I mean, here Jesus is referred to as everlasting Father. Is that ever? Has anybody ever tripped on that? Everybody said, "What's? How can Jesus be referred to as everlasting Father?" Has anybody ever th- wondered about that? I've had people ask me about that before. Um, in fact, the first time I think I was ever asked about that was when I was going out to the out to the um, Columbiana County Jail and doing the ministry out there. One of the inmates out there came and said, "You know, I got a question." You know, this text here, verse 6, is speaking about Jesus. And I'm like, yeah, you know. Uh, they had studied it quite a bit, you know. I said, yeah, that's speaking about Jesus. And then they said, well, is Jesus the Father? Is Jesus the Father? No, Jesus is not the Father. Jesus is God. We have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct personalities, one God, right? Pretty hard to get your mind around that. In fact, you don't get your mind all the way around that. Um, that's beyond our That's that. Our elevators don't go that high, but what we need to understand about this text here is it's put its context is everything, and what's being promised is a king. Ahaz is one of the worst kings Judah ever had, and what's being promised is the Lord is going to bring the best king that they've ever had and ever will have. Let's keep in mind Jesus is not only our Savior, but He is also our Lord. He is a king. You know, much of our current culture forgets that, if you will. He is a king. Now, kings oftentimes would be referred to as fathers if they were good kings. And the fatherly part of it referred to their tenderness. Were they tender and caring for their subjects, or did they just simply exploit them for their own personal gain? And what we have here is we have Jesus being called a mighty counselor, a miraculous counselor. He's being called mighty God. Now, in the midst of all this judgment and stuff, that could be terrifying. If it weren't for this third title, everlasting father. What's that say? Oh, he is going to be terrifying, but he's also going to be tender. He's going to care for his people. Let's think about that. I mean, nobody could possibly have known or even imagined that this king would go to a cross. You want to talk about fatherly tenderness, that this mighty king, this this wonderful counselor, this everlasting father, this prince of peace, how how can he be called the prince of peace? Because he's the one who brings peace. Not to forget about Assyria, forget about, forget about all these other nations for a moment. We've got a bigger problem than that. We got to get right with the Lord, don't we? We got to get right with God, don't we? The Prince of Peace is the one who enables us to get right with God. How does he do it? He goes to the cross, doesn't he? He dies on the cross for the sins of his people. He truly is an everlasting. Father, in this sense. It's not a reference to the persons of the Trinity here. It's a reference to what kind of king Jesus is. Does that make sense? Notice verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. Now, it's, there's no question. I mean, here we're talking about a future Davidic king. This will ultimately be fulfilled in Christ on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This last line had been saving. Look at the very last line. Who is going to do this? The zeal of the Lord of hosts. Host simply means army. He is Lord of the armies. He is Lord of the angelic army, if you will. He is the one who's going to do this. Let me just close with one last application of all of this, you know. Uh, one thing that's on the mind of every single parent in this room and every single grandparent in this room is what kind of world is, are our children going to be living in? Am I right? You know, your minds are like, oh, Rick, what are you doing to us, man? Oh, man, I can see you. Some of your eyes are closed. I'm putting you to sleep. I'm sorry. I'm doing my best to try to explain this. What is this? What what is the lasting? What is the lasting application from all of this? I don't know what kind of world these little ones are going to be living in. I couldn't have imagined the world that I'm living in now when I was 18 years old, nor could have anyone else. Think about it. Go back 30 or 40 years ago. Could you imagine that we'd be where we are right now? We can no more imagine what things are going to be like in another 15 or 20 years than we could have done 15 or 20 years ago. I don't know the answer to that. I can't answer that. But here's what I can say. The same God that has managed to get us through all of this will get them through all of this. Two words. O Emmanuel. Heavenly Father, these two words bring tears to our eyes. As we think of the joy that we don't have to figure all this out, it's not up to our political astuteness as we see, but it's up to you, Lord, you're the one who watches over us. You're the one who cares for us. You're the one who has made these promises. You're the one who applies these promises. You're the one who has accomplished these promises. You've accomplished this salvation. And, Fathers, we think about what, what will this world look like in 15 or 20 years. There isn't any of us could even begin to guess. People try to guess. Around New Year's, people will be trying to guess. And these are fun things to do. and We do this year in and year out. And... We've been doing it long enough, we can go back and listen to some of the things that have been guessed years past, and some of them are nutty, some of them are close. But Father, at the end of the day, we do not know what the future holds. But Lord, we know these two words, oh Emmanuel, you're with us, and you've proved your love for your people by coming in the person of Jesus Christ, which we celebrate. We celebrate that this morning that you stepped into time, space, and history and the person of Jesus Christ, and you did so to go to a cross, to die, to be everlasting father to your people, to be a prince of peace. Oh, Father, we thank you, and we praise you, Lord. As we think about what kind of world our children are going to dwell in, it's it's going to be a world that you're going to be just as sovereign over as you are at the moment. And Father, we're thankful for that, Father, we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.